So we just heard this beautiful, beautiful gospel story from Luke's 15th chapter. It's just, um, it's really one story told three different ways, as we'll find out (coughs) over these next few days. But before we get into that, I want to just go back to kind of the fundamental question that human beings ask. You know, once they come to an idea of that there is a God, once they realize that this creation that we live in, this beautiful world, didn't didn't create itself, that there's something behind it, there's something in it, there's something above us, there's a, there's a power, there's a grace, there's a, a creator out there somewhere. You know, the first question is, okay, what is this God, this creator, this power? What is it like? Who is it? Who is this, this God? And is, 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 is it something, you know, what is it? What is this creator, this power that's behind everything? And, you know, every religion has their way of responding. You don't need to go into all of that. Buddhism kind of has its way. It's kind of not even sure about the God thing. We kind of seek nirvana. Hindu has tons of gods and goddesses. If you ever take a class in Hinduism, be prepared to memorize all kinds of gods and their images and their names and what they do. They have tons and tons of gods. Monotheistic religions, the religions of the book as we call them, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, we have a very specific idea about God. And, you know, God is the creator. We have that in the beautiful story of creation from Genesis. God, of course, is all-powerful as the creator. That's easy. But the thing that sets apart, I think, the religions of the book, our tradition, our Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition, is that we see God also as being personal. You know, God is not just a being. God is not just a power. God is not just a force. God is not just, you know, a philosophical concept. God is personal, which means that God feels, and God loves, and God listens, and God speaks sometimes, and maybe most important of all, God acts in our human affairs. He's he's around. He's here. He's doing things for us. And other people of other religions sort of think that's kind of crazy, but but we don't. It makes perfect sense to us because of our tradition and our history and the revelation that we've received through Judaism and Christianity. And so Christianity adds a very specific... That's common to all of our three religions, but Christianity adds something very specific to that, that idea of a personal God. God acts, yes... But he acts in a very particular way. He acts by humbling himself to become one of us, to become one in flesh with us. And this is an audacious thing to say. You know, that God would, would, who is all powerful and is almighty and all great and all grand, the creator of the universe, this ineffable spirit that somehow is the root of everything that is, that he should become one of us. That's really an extraordinary claim that we as Christians make. And of course, our Jewish brothers and our Islamic brothers, they don't buy that part of the story. You know, Jesus is a nice guy. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a great rabbi. But he's not God made flesh. And we say, yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. And that's so important for us, that God humbles himself to be here with us, to suffer with us, to feel with us, to experience life down here. What's the typical human reaction 
to troubles in life. We shake our fists at the heavens and say, God, you don't know what it's like down here. How come you're leaving us alone? It's great for you to be up there in the heavens, all powerful, creating universes and stuff. But I need you here. Where are you? And Jesus is God's answer to that cry from the earth. Where are you? Why aren't you here with us? You don't know what it's like, God, to be a human being. You don't know what it's like to suffer. You're perfect after all. And with Jesus, the answer is, oh, yes, I do. Oh, yes, I do. I know plenty about suffering. I know plenty about joy. I know plenty about drinking wine. I know plenty about everything that is human. That's the Christian take on a personal God. And it's really, really essential. Because it's the foundation of everything else that we believe as Christians. You know that God was a human being with us. Flesh and bone. God knows what it's like to be born in poverty. God knows what it's like to be hungry. God knows what it's like to suffer. God even knows what it's like to be tempted for heaven's sakes. We had that reading a couple Sundays ago. So, God even knows what it's like to die with us. That's audacious, but it's also spectacular. It's wonderful. It makes God accessible to us right here. Right here. Jesus, what he does in his life, he doesn't just accompany us. He does that for sure. In our poverty, in our sufferings, in our graces, in our joys. He eats with us, he drinks with us, yes. He even dies with us, yes. But more than anything else, Jesus shows us what God is like. Who God is. What we can expect from God. And he shows it to us with words we can understand. That gospel reading we just read, that Father Vincent just proclaimed. There's one word in it that's a giveaway that this story goes directly back to Jesus' mouth. When the story is talking about the woman with the coin, Luke says the coin is a drachma. It's a word that was used at the time of Jesus, but it's not a word that was used at the time of Luke. They changed the kinds of money they used. It was a denarii in Luke's time. But Luke keeps that word because he's preserving this story as it came to him from those who heard it. This story is straight from the horse's mouth. Jesus' mouth. And even more from his heart. And so when we're hearing this story, these stories together, these parables, this is Jesus telling us with words and images that we can hear and we can understand and we can see with our own imagination who God is and by extension, of course, who he is. So, this story, Luke chapter 15, tells three little stories within it. They're all really the same story. 
told with a little different twist, a little different character, slightly different point. But they're really the same story. In fact, when Jesus introduces it, when Luke introduces the story, he says, Jesus then told them this parable, singular. And then he goes on to tell three stories, which is his way of saying it's one story. It's just three different versions of it. Anyway, so tonight I want to do three things to begin. Um, We've got most of the week to work our way through the story. Tonight I want to talk about to whom Jesus is speaking when he tells this story. That's really, really important, that we know to whom he's telling this story. And obviously, then why? And then we're going to talk about the first of the stories, the story of the really bad shepherd, who turns out to be a really good shepherd in the end. And then the story of the really bad housewife, who turns out to be a really good housewife in the end. Both of those stories, of course, are stories about God and about Jesus. So, to whom is Jesus speaking? Well, it's easy to imagine Jesus on a hillside up in Galilee somewhere. He's got a big crowd of people in front of him, and he's telling these stories, and everybody's listening and saying, isn't that nice? They're great stories. That's not the way it was. Those Jesus' apostles, his disciples, his followers were probably listening in. But Jesus is talking to a very specific group of people. If you remember how this begins, Father Vincent read it to you. If you have your card, you can... Look on the very opening scene. These, Jesus has been eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners of various kinds. And the Pharisees who are standing around in the story are really, really upset with him. They're murmuring. They're gossiping. I'm sure there's no gossip at St. Therese Parish, is there? No, I can't believe there would be. They're murmuring, they're gossiping, they're doing that, you know, the snide comments, the snarky comments on the side. Because Jesus is supposed to be a rabbi like them. He's a teacher. He knows his stuff, he knows his Bible, he knows his law, and he knows his prophets, it's clear. So he's right up there with the Pharisees. But what he's doing is really, really scandalous to them. And that's why they're murmuring. And that's why they don't like this Jesus at all, rabbi though he may be. So who are these Pharisees anyway? We think we know them, of course. Um, You know, because we hear about them. They're the bad guys in these gospel stories usually. They're the ones that are picking on Jesus. And Jesus usually slaps them down with some really wise comments or and eventually, some of them anyway participate in the plot to kind of take Jesus out. So we know they're the bad guys. But there weren't the bad guys, actually. They thought themselves pretty good guys. They were holy guys. They were people who really loved God and really loved God's law. So they thought. They would have said to themselves, and today, and today if you speak to Jewish people about Pharisees, they'll say, no, they're, they're our modern-day rabbis. They're, our rabbis come from the Pharisees. So they're probably good people. Most of them are probably really good people. There's, there's three classes, there's three ways of, um, three kind of groups that are working in the society at the time as far as religion goes. So, so you know, 
the, the cult in Jerusalem, you know, the temple and all of that stuff, there was a lot of corruption and a lot of not living up to their ideals. So there were three responses to that. One response was to what the Essenes did. So they said, this is all too corrupt. We don't like this stuff, so we're going to move away and we're going to move on top of a hill where nobody can get to us and we're going to create our own little society up there where we can live the law without corruption and where everyone will be pure and everyone will be good and there'll be no corruption. We'll live the law of Moses perfectly up there on our mountaintop and we'll have nothing to do with these corrupt people down below who are dirty and who are corrupt and who are not living the law the way they should. So the Essenes, they go up onto their mountaintop. They're the ones who preserve the Qumran scrolls, if you know a little bit about that. So they're up there. The Pharisees have a different answer. They say, we don't want to live up on a mountaintop. We want to live here. We want to live here where we've always lived. This is our world. This is our country. This is our temple. This is our religion. We're staying right here. But we are concerned about corruption. We are concerned about not living the law perfectly. If we live the law perfectly, we believe the Messiah will come. Things will work out for us. You know, we'll be able to get rid of the Roman oppressors and whatever other foreign oppressors, and we'll be able to be our country again. We'll be able to be the great kingdom of David again. But we've got to live the law perfectly. We've got to do what God wants us to do, and we've got to do it right. But they, too, are saying to themselves, we're down here with regular people. But we don't really like the regular people very much because they don't live the law, because they're dirty. They're people of the land. They're people of the land. That's the word they used for, you know, the ordinary people, you know, the people who go to work and the people who do the dirty work and the people who live their ordinary lives and they don't spend a lot of time on religion and they're not dedicated to reading the scriptures and understanding the law. They're just trying to get along. They call those the people of the land. That was a derogatory term for them and we don't want to hang with them. They're the sinners. They're the corrupt people. We're the good people. Because we know the law of Moses, and we know the scriptures, and we know the prophets. And we keep ourselves clean and pure. And because of that, because of that, they would have nothing to do with the people of the land. The dirty people, the sinners, whatever class they might be in. So the last thing a Pharisee would do would be eat dinner, share table fellowship with a person of the land, with a dirty person, with a sinner, with an ordinary person. We're not getting close to you because if I eat with you, it means we share brotherhood, a sisterhood. So I'm not going to eat with you. Under no conditions will I ever invite you into my home And I'll never go to your home. I'm never even going to get close to you. I don't want to know you because you're sinners. And we're not sinners. We're good. We're holy. And within this group of Pharisees, they were sort of general Pharisees, but there was also within that a group of super Pharisees. They were like their own little club, their own little guild within the Pharisees. And they were super, super traditional. 
and super, super careful about not dealing with sinners, ordinary people, people of the land, the dirty people. And they had a name that they called one another. If they belonged to this, this elite group of Pharisees, Habarim, which means in Hebrew, friends. The friendly order of Pharisees. They would call each other, Habarim, friends. So who is Jesus talking to? We have a clue in these stories. When the shepherd finds his sheep and goes to town and has a party to celebrate, who does he invite into the party? His friends. When the woman finds her coin and celebrates, who does she invite in to celebrate with her? Friends. When the father rejoices at his son come home, who was lost but is now found, he has a celebration. Who comes to the celebration? His friends. Habarim. That's really, really important for understanding who Jesus is telling this story to. He's talking directly at these Pharisees and even more directly at these friends, the Habarim, who are probably standing right there in front of him, who've been moaning and complaining and murmuring and gossiping about the fact that he hangs around with whom? The people of the land. The dirty people, the sinners, the tax collectors. So this is to whom Jesus is speaking. And it's really, really important to understand what Jesus' message is, to remember to whom he's speaking. He's speaking to the Pharisees, the Habarim, the friends, the guild of holy people who are so holy and so righteous and so godly and so immersed in the scriptures and the revelation of the patriarchs that they can't get their hands dirty by having anything to do with the dirty people over there. The very people Jesus is hanging around with and even eating with. Jesus has been eating with tax collectors, traitors, people who are collaborators with the oppressors, cheats. They get their tax and charge an extra 300% and keep it all for themselves. They were rats. And Jesus is having table fellowship with them, which means he's becoming a brother with them. So no wonder the Pharisees are upset with this rabbi who's doing precisely what they would never do because of their holiness. Does that make sense? So far so good? Following me? Okay. So... Um, so these stories 
are Jesus' extraordinary response to them. He begins by telling the Pharisees, by really making them mad. If you remember how he begins, he begins, What man among you, if you had a sheep? In other words, if you were a shepherd, and they're saying, I'm no shepherd. That's one of the ordinary people. That's a person of the land. That's the people of the land. Those are the dirty people. Shepherds are, 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 they're, they're robbers and beggars and they're poor people and, and they don't follow the law and they, they live terrible lives. What do you mean if I were a shepherd? Jesus begins by insulting them and calling them exactly what they would hate to be called. I'm no shepherd. I'm a Pharisee. I don't rob, I don't steal, I don't maraud, I don't take care of sheep, I study the law. Oh, what man among you if you were a shepherd? They can't even imagine that. You know, if they had switches in their brain to turn Jesus off, it would have been switched right there. Not going to listen anymore. But there's other people, so they're kind of stuck, they have to stay. And then he tells this story of the shepherd. So the shepherd is a bad shepherd for a couple of reasons. First, he's a bad shepherd just because he's a shepherd. That makes you automatically bad. You're a person of the land. But secondly, you're a bad shepherd because you just lost one of your sheep. And that's, you know, you got a hundred sheep, you lose one of them. That's a big loss. And it could only happen because you weren't doing your job right. You know, sheep aren't that smart. You probably know better than, a lot better than I about sheep. I don't know. There's ranches. Do you do sheep around here, Brother Vincent? No, no sheep here. Okay. Well, anyway. Um, so sheep are not that smart. They kind of hang together. They don't, you know, it's not that hard to shepherd sheep, I guess. But anyway, one gets lost. You don't find out about them being lost until you go to count them at the end of the day. So it's the end of the day, he's counting his sheep, he's missing one. And if he were a smart, good shepherd, he'd say, well, too bad. Let me get these sheep home, and then we'll go out and look and see if we can find the other one. And he's a bad shepherd for a third reason. He doesn't do that. He leaves the 99 in the wilderness as prey for all kinds of marauding animals. So... He goes after the lost sheep immediately. And he puts the entire flock at risk. But Jesus doesn't focus on this shepherd's badness. That's not the point of the story. He doesn't then say, okay, you Pharisees, you've lost sheep, therefore I'm scolding you. To the contrary, he completely forgets about the ninety-nine. At this point in the story. And he fully concentrates on the shepherd who goes out to find that one sheep at the end of the day. He goes out to find that one sheep because he knows that sheep. He's a shepherd. This is what he does all day. He knows his sheep, they're like his children. They're like his little family, you know. 
and the sheep is lost. That's my little sheep out there, my little lamb. And I can't let him be lost. Because I love him and I know him. And I can't stand the thought of him being out there alone, bleeding away. Perhaps being eaten by God knows what. A mountain lion or something. So he immediately, without thinking, goes out into the wilderness to find the sheep. And this was no easy task. As you can imagine, it's rough out there. If any of you have been to the Holy Land, you know that territory. It is rocky and it is stony and it is dry and it is full of brambles and it is hard to walk through. There's no picnic here for this guy. And he's got to go back and forth and retrace his path. And he's calling all the time because he knows his sheep knows his voice. He's calling out for him, calling out for him, calling out for him. And it could take hours and hours and hours. And always with the great fear that maybe the poor sheep is already dead. So he gets out there and he's calling and he's calling. He's desperate. He's crazy in love with that sheep. That lamb. He can think of nothing else. He's going to go until he finds it living or dead. Because he loves him. He's crazy in love with him. Forget about the 99. They'll take care of themselves. I've got to find this one. Because he's precious to me and he's valuable. And I can't let him suffer out there by himself. And he finally, he finally hears the sheep responding to his voice, bleeding back in its weakness. And he follows the sound until he finds the sheep. And then he puts the sheep over his shoulders. With one hand holds the four hooves, four feet together, so he can walk with his staff. And he heads back to town. He's overjoyed. He's found his sheep. He's found his lamb. He's found his beloved. He gets back to town. And he's so happy. He's so overcome with joy. He's so happy to have this little sheep back that he says, let's have a party. And he invites his friends Habarim. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, you Pharisees, you've been losing sheep and not going out to find them. You've been losing the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners and the people who do this and do that who are unclean in your eyes. They are your sheep. They're the sons of God. They're the sons of Israel, the daughters of Israel. They're your sheep. And I've been doing what you should have been doing all along. You should have been out there calling the sheep back. You should have been out there finding them. But you didn't. But it's not too late. Habarim, come and celebrate with me. 
because our sheep have been found. That tax collector is now again a son of God. That prostitute now again is a daughter of God. I found them and I brought them back and we're celebrating. Come on in. I'm not going to hold it against you that it was you who lost them. Come on, let's celebrate. Let's rejoice together, Pharisees, Habarim, friends. That's Jesus' point. He's saying to the Pharisees, Look, you lost a lot of sheep along the way. I'm finding them. Let's celebrate together. I don't mind doing your work for you. But instead of murmuring against me, instead of saying how terrible it is that I'm eating with your lost sheep, celebrate. They're back. They're back. The sheep that was lost has been found. The tax collector. Bartimaeus. The woman caught in adultery. The list goes on and on and on. Well, the story is also told by Luke because it's meant for us as well. You can draw lots and lots of lessons out of it. You probably already think in your, your head's lessons from your own lives. And that's great. Um, who are we in this story? Are we the people of the land, the tax collectors, the sinners, who've strayed, who've gone off, who've fallen, who've made our mistakes in life, and we've come back, and we all rejoice that we're back? Or are we those Pharisees, those Habarim, who in their holiness never did anything wrongness, their coolness with God, have been letting the sheep go and won't even rejoice when they're found. It's hard to imagine ourselves like them, but maybe, maybe there's more of them in us than we'd like to admit. But perhaps the most important thing about the story is that this shepherd is Jesus and this shepherd who is crazy in love with his sheep is our God if you want to know what God is like that shepherd is what God is like as he searches and searches and searches panic crazy in love with every one last of his sheep no matter who they are, what they've done, where they've been, or how lost they are. And the other nice thing about this story, important thing about this story, is the sheep simply accepts being found. He, the sheep didn't come searching for the shepherd. It's lost. It doesn't have any strength left. It's, it's gone. He's just waiting to die. And then he hears the voice of his master, his pastor. And he knows he's saved, and he accepts being saved right where he was. Anyway, pretty great story, huh?
Let's see. So, next story. This is the, we'll stop after this one, okay? The housewife. Presume she's a housewife. Jesus just says she's a lady. This time Jesus doesn't begin by saying to the Pharisees, what man among you, if you were a housewife, that would be over the top. In that culture, you would never do that. Jesus broke lots of boundaries and stuff, but he didn't break that one. The Pharisees couldn't imagine that. But the story has the same structure, basically the same design as the, as the first story. So the background of the story is that women, household ladies, this is a, this is not a rich woman. A rich woman would have her gold, her coins, her wealth around her neck. It would be medals and, and jewelry and be, be on display. A very wealthy woman. It's still the same way in the Middle East to this day to a large degree. A more poor woman, a more normal woman would keep her the few coins, the little bit of wealth that she had, her riches, enough, you know, to keep the household going in a small little rag, a cloth, you know, um, wrapped up with a string and tied around her neck, maybe tucked down inside her, her blouse or something. And, and she was in charge of guarding that money because that was, that's not, that's not a coin. Those aren't coins that are going to be invested in a bank account. They're not coins they're going to earn interest on. They're not investment coins. They're not show coins to show how rich I am. Those are the coins you use to buy bread for your family to buy the wheat that you need to make the bread for your family. So presumably she's a mother. She's the lady of the house, reasonably, probably reasonably poor, somewhere middle class or lower, because that's the way it's described in the story. The houses in the time, um, in Galilee, If you've, some of you may have visited in Galilee, you'll know that the homes there, the common people homes, were built of big black granite blocks, so that was the building material. So when the Bible says, when the scripture says Jesus was a carpenter, they really mean Jesus was somebody who worked with, with building houses out of big black granite blocks. Jesus almost certainly was buff. <laughs> he was a tough guy because that's what he did for a living. So the houses were built of granite. There would be a doorway, of course, to get in and out. And then there would be a slight little slit at the top to let smoke out from cooking. And so there would be very, very little light inside. Black walls, um, a roof made of thatch, very little, little natural light entering in. And the floor sometimes would be of dirt, but more often would be of kind of granite flagstone. So it would be kind of pieced together. Between those stones, there was gaps. So if you dropped your coin, lost a coin and it got between one of those cracks in the floor, it was really, really hard to find them. Archaeologists are still finding them today when they dig around inside these these old houses from the first century. They're poking around and they find lost coins. Sometimes they slipped underneath the stones. Or they've fallen in the cracks. So this is a perfectly normal thing that would happen. This would, this, Jesus isn't making this story up out of nothing. This is what happens to real women in real homes in, in Palestine in the first century. So this poor lady has lost one drachma. A drachma was, in Jesus' time, a full day's wage for a man. So that's what her husband or her man would have earned in a day's labor, working hard under the sun. So it's a very valuable coin. It's very valuable for her because that's the coin she uses 
to buy food for her family. What mother isn't going to be worried about losing one of those coins? They protected them very, very carefully. So she's a bad housewife because somehow or other she loses a drachma. You can imagine her panic. You know, how am I going to feed the kids? I've lost this coin. What's my husband going to say? You know, um, what are my neighbors going to say when they hear that I've lost one of my husband's coins that he's worked so hard for? When I have to go begging for help from my neighbors to buy bread for the kids. So it's a really valuable loss for her. She loses the house, she loses the coin inside the house. Jesus makes it very clear. She's not wandering off to the community well or down to the market. She doesn't lose it outside. This is important. She loses it within the household. Remember the sheep that was lost? He was lost out in the wilderness. This is lost within the home, within the household. Those two different kinds of losses are going to be very important when we get to the two sons in the next story. One is lost in the wilderness, and one is lost right at home. So these three stories are really interconnected. Anyway, so in desperation, she goes crazy with desperation. i got to find this, the same kind of craziness that the shepherd has, crazy in love. Not because of the value of the coin itself, but because what the coin means to the family. Because of the food. And so she lights a lamp so that she can see. And she starts searching the house and digging up the floor until she finally, finally finds the last lost coin. Out of love, crazy love for her family. And she doesn't give up until she finds the coin. And the coin is valuable because of the relationships it represents with her kids, perhaps with her husband. It's the relationship that's important. It's not the value, the money value of the gold in the coin. It's what the coin means to the family and her responsibility to the family. And the coin remains valuable whether it's lost or not lost. That's why she goes crazy looking for it. And Jesus is making a point here that every mother will understand. The child is valuable. The sheep is valuable. The coin is valuable whether it's lost or not lost. It doesn't become less valuable because I've lost it. It doesn't decrease in value. In some ways it increases in value. It becomes more precious to me. That too will be important in the next story. And finally, just as a PS, we're almost done with this, these two stories. It is even today extraordinary that in telling this story, Jesus could have used multiple images to make this point. He's already used the shepherd and the sheep. He uses the image of a woman to portray God's love 
This is not 21st century feminism. This is 1st century Jesus feminism. Jesus portrays the love of God as a woman. The Pharisees must have been, what the heck? What kind of teacher, what kind of rabbi are you? Create a story that makes sense. Don't be telling us God is beautifully portrayed by a woman who's crazy in love with her family. But Jesus does it anyway. And we know Jesus did this fairly often. And we know Jesus did it because he had women who were his followers. That comes up often in the scriptures. So in a way, this is Jesus' way of saying, you ladies, you women, you know, you are as much an image of God and of God's love and of God's compassion and God's mercy as the shepherd in the first story or the father in the third story. So this is what God is like, Jesus is saying. This is what I'm like. Jesus compares himself to the woman. He's, it's all three. So the shepherd and the woman represent God, of course. They also represent Jesus because this is what Jesus is doing. He is looking for that lost coin. And what does the woman do when she finds the coin? She says, come on in. Let's have a party, my friends. Habarim, Pharisees, come on in. The sinner has been found. And even though he was a sinner or she was a sinner, she was still valuable in my eyes, as valuable as any other of my coins or my sheep. So this is who God is. This is who Jesus is. A shepherd who will stop at nothing to find his lost sheep. A housewife who will stop at nothing to find her lost coin. So that their relationships with us can be whole. This is God's being. This is who God is. This is God's name. As Pope Francis has been saying so often, I think even one of his books is entitled this, the very name of God, which is the very heart of God, the very being of God, is mercy. The lost, the sinner, the so-called people of the land, the dirty people, so looked down upon by the Pharisees and their so-called guild of friends. These are the ones that Jesus is searching out and looking for who he's crazy in love with. These are the ones that God loves and is crazy in love for. These are the ones Jesus eats dinner with to the scandal of the Pharisees, sadly. Jesus' invitation to come to the feast isn't accepted. So, anyway, we're going to have just a few minutes of quiet meditation and then a few prayers and then we'll be done. I was going to ask if there's any questions, but we can do those afterwards, okay? So let us quietly pray.